Welcome to Squad, the leadership and high performance podcast that aims to help you change your game through inspirational stories and insights from some of the most fascinating people around. From business leaders to Olympic gold medalists, we're here to prove that by reimagining your mindset, anything is possible. This is Squad. Let's change the game. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by an entrepreneur who has cultivated a career in an industry where fine margins are quite literally the difference between failure and success. From initial rejection to best-selling author, this man has gone on to build a strong reputation globally based upon process, procedure, and having the right structure to achieve high levels of performance. I'm delighted to welcome recruitment leader, mentor, and all-round staffing champion, Steve Guest. Hi, Steve. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks, Simon. How are you? Yep, not too bad, you know. Uh, particularly enthused post um, Boris's news the other day. Um, all looking no. forward to we were we were discussing the uh, the pint, weren't we? <laughs> Before we go on <laughs> Def- here, definitely the pint. I think the I think the wife will be high fiving the kids going back to school more than the pint. But yeah, it's all about priorities, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, priorities are subjective, Steve. So, yeah, very true. The kids, the I say in jest. <laughs> I wouldn't say it if the wife was next to me. No, 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 no probably not. Um, but I um, for, for those that, that, that don't know you, Steve, um, it'd be great to have a bit of an intro. Um, you've got a great sort of very compelling story to tell, which I'm very interested in, in getting to, you know, the nub off in the next hour or so. Um, so tell us about about yourself and, and, and what you're doing now. Okay, so uh, I'm Steve Guest. I'm born and bred in the West Midlands, as you can probably tell from the dulcet tones. Um, I've been in recruitment for 15 years. Prior to recruitment, I worked as a strategic commodity buyer, uh, working on multi-million pound frameworks and negotiating um, big contracts. Um, my recruitment journey um, has obviously led me to where I am now, and that's probably the most prominent in in what I've done. Um, started off working for a big corporate um, after a couple of years, being one of the top performing or the top performing per- perm consultant. Um, moved on to set up a new region for a company called Fast Track Management Services. Spent 11 years there building two of their regions. Um, over the last couple of years, I've wrote um, my first book, um, that got published end of 2019. That's now sold across 42 countries. Uh, and I believe to this date is the highest reviewed book, recruitment book on Amazon. Um, and I've just started and built uh, what I call the 12 week recruitment mastery program, um, which is a mentoring recruitment program that is now global um, and, and doing really well. And, and that all comes from someone that was told at the start that I wasn't your typical uh, recruiter and didn't really fit the profile and actually didn't even get the first position I recruited for, which I often say is the fuel to my fire and, and probably what started me on, on the journey. Cause that's really interesting, isn't it? And I, and I, um, I actually didn't really know this um, until you, know, you and I had spoken that that was the case. And I, I suppose there are many people that have, you know, started a journey of recruitment hasn't gone quite as well as they, they've planned, but not many people have ended up doing what you've done. And so it'd be very mm-hmm. interesting to find out how that, you know, how that journey looks. But you, you said there that you didn't quite fit the profile. And I think that's a really interesting 
phrase to make, particularly in a world now where recruitment has changed in, you know, with 2021, it's, it changed so, so much, I think, relative to years previously as a result of the pandemic. And we wonder now what does look like a, you know, a, a recruiter? What is the, the recruitment consultant going to look like? Are they even going to be called mm -hmm. a recruit, you know, a recruitment consultant? But what was it when you started that, that you feel or that you were told meant that you didn't fit the bill? Okay, so the feedback I got was I, I perhaps didn't come across as that confident, salesy, outgoing, flamboyant personality. And I am quite happy with who I am. I am a reserved, considered, um, I suppose, thoughtful individual that likes to think about what I'm being asked or um, what's part of the conversation before I give a response. I'm not one that jumps in with two feet. Um, and I think I'm going back here, what, 15 years. And I don't think actually the, the idea of what a recruiter should look like has really changed all that much. I think people, the expectation of what a recruiter should look like, you still think pinstripe suits, big city office, big fat ties, loud kind of making calls or after calls, walking around with two phones next to their ears. That's the typical profile, whether it's correct or not, it's kind of irrelevant. It's just what people build into what they think that they should be. Um, and if I think back to where I was, I'd spent a couple of years as a buyer. So by my very nature, I am process procedure, very kind of structured in my, my thought process and approach. I'm probably borderline OCD in the fact that I like everything to have its place. Um, and if you look at my normal weeks, most people will probably look at it and think that's pretty dull because you'll always know where I am at any time during the day. <laughs> I go to the same shops. Sometimes I might pick a different variety of yogurt or crisps, but generally I've got a pretty borderline standard lunch. It's just who I am. And my thought process at the time, I was a qualified buyer. So I thought, right, I can go and recruit for procurement staff because I understand the process. I understand what they should have. And to me, it was a no-brainer because recruitment is about following a process. It's about being consistent. It's about delivering on the deliverables. And I knew I could do that. But then being told that I didn't fit the profile actually made me stop and think, well, what, what's wrong with being different? What's wrong with standing out from everybody else? But obviously that wasn't, that wasn't to be at that particular interview. So how did you deal with that because already having not even got into an industry which is built on uh, and continues to profess a large degree of resilience um if it's a word possibly that's becoming overused um almost mm -hmm. like a badge of honor at the moment um but you haven't even got into the sector which is built and you know made up of that and yet you were there you were with your first hurdle so what what did you do so you went back home presumably or wherever it is you went after that rejection or wherever you was you were when you received that rejection yeah. what, what was your first thought well i wasn't used to being rejected if i'm honest i was used to getting job offers when i went for interviews um and generally i've always strived to be good at whatever I do and, and I'm not, not used to being told no or at least no in a way that almost puts that hurdle there and I think the story's probably morphed a little bit over the years and, and my normal answer to that is I crossed the road to um, a different division but within the same business 
and, and actually said to them, look, they won't take me on over there, take me on and I will spend every working hour of every day proving them wrong. Um, and that is the, that is the true story. I don't think it was as if I walked out the interview, dealt with rejection, walked straight over. I think there was a few days in between, but over the years, it grabs a bit more drama, doesn't it? <laughs> of I think. It does. Um, but that's exactly the, the mentality. So I went from a purchasing supply division to a construction and property division and said, look, take me on, give me that opportunity and I'll make sure you don't regret taking me on. And I will prove the fact that actually being different can be really valuable and, and actually can make a huge difference. Um, and I actually, I used it as the fuel and I used to go back to the directors that said I wasn't fitting the profile every so often. Um, and just remind them. So when I achieved promotions or I achieved regional records or perm billing records, I used to just drop a little email saying, look, look what I've done. Um, and I think that kept me on, a, I suppose, kept the momentum for me to keep pushing because I needed to pr like prove the doubters wrong. That sounds to me like you put yourself on under an enormous amount of pressure each day and each week yeah. and each month and recruitment's pressured enough you know um and we talk about fine margins yeah. in recruitment quite literally and um it sounds though that every day you woke up you'd put even more pressure on you did it feel like pressure yeah it was huge pressure not only that so not only did i need to prove to myself that i could do it and prove the people that thought i couldn't do it wrong my salary had halved so i'd gone from being reasonably well paid as a buyer um, I think salary salary was about 25 grand back then. Um, and it went to 12 and a half. So I think I had to bill over 10 grand a month in perm billings to even kind of get close to where I was previously. So just knowing the fact that what I had to do is a bare minimum to even get back to financially where I was before. The pressure was financial. It was mental. It was psychological. It was that kind of overbearing um pressure that i suppose just meant you didn't have any other excuses you just need to make make it happen um and you almost give yourself no easy way out which i think you know when, when we talk about high performance which we'll come on to in a minute the people that we've had on this podcast before have all said that they've dealt with that 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 pressure to be that that high performer i mean obviously it manifests itself in different ways but they've almost thrived off it um and i mm -hmm. loved the fact that there was that pressure and and had it not been for that pressure they would never have made it into winning gold medals or setting up organizations mm -hmm. that have gone on to a you know a mass fortunes yeah so were you, would you say, in the in the context of the team in which you worked, were you unique in the way that you were, do you think, or was the culture that it was full of people like that? Um, I think going back, I, 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 I wasn't, the, as I say, the typical recruiter. I wasn't the loud person. I didn't enjoy getting up to kind of ring the bell or shout the, and beat the drum when something good happened. Whilst it was part of the culture and it was part of what the office did, I was quite happy just to keep going. So I would perhaps do all of that at the end of the day when I know I've done everything I need to do. That wasn't my achievement. It wasn't my achievement to stand up in front of everyone and say, look at me, I've made another placement. 
my view was just to make another call, make another, arrange another interview and just keep going. And I think there's, there's almost like a social acceptance within recruitment. And, and I get it. I, I like the culture. I like the team spirit. I like the fact that we can compete amongst consultants internally and there's an office and it's got its place. And I, do, I did thrive on it, but I didn't necessarily like to shout about it. I just like to get my numbers or my results to show actually that person over there, the one that doesn't speak too often, <laughs> is the one that's actually making the heads turn. Yeah, it's really interesting, and it, it it draws back into your, you know, your the sense of knowing what you are and how you operate in terms of being measured, being process driven, perhaps being mm-hmm. um, consistent with, it, it, emotionally. Um, and mm-hmm. you know, I've worked in plenty of organisations, and I know that you will be working with plenty of organisations that have not had so much of that it is all about the bell ringing metaphorically it's all about the shouting yeah, yeah. and if you aren't shouting and you aren't ringing that bell there is a reason and he probably won't be around very much longer to ring it <laughs> anyway even if that were your propensity yeah. right so um and, yeah. and, and, and agreed steve you know there is a there there is a place for that but it's a it's a high pressured environment that isn't it and i think so only when you take yourself yourself out of that environment you understand that is a tough environment to be in if you aren't, mm-hmm. in some regard, you have to be measured. Yeah, I think I, I'm quite, I'm, I'm comfortable in who I am. And I'm, I can stand up against the loudest person and the, the most abusive and, and whatever else. I, I will stand my ground. I think even at school, if I look back, I was never, I was never one of the cool kids, but I was never one of the kids that, kind of were picked on or pushed around I was the one that was in the middle that would protect the kids that got pushed around but and and be kind of left alone with the others it was always that middle of the road type well we kind of leave Steve alone because he is who he is I was never kind of on either party and I think again that comes back to the fact that I'm just reasonably measured and and content and I can kind of diffuse situations reasonably well because it's I just have that kind of calm level of where I am. I don't get too ecstatic with the wins and I don't get too down on the losses. Um, It's just part of the process and you keep that momentum and it just means you keep building on top of what you've done. What does high performance look like to you? For me, high performance as an individual is obviously about performing at your highest level. And I, and I think I think it changes as you get older. And, and for me now, high performance is about making sure I improve every day in small increments. I talk a lot about the compound effect. I love Dave Brailsford and the marginal gains and that 1% incremental differences. Um, and I think high performance... Back in the day when I first started recruitment, it was about proving people wrong and doing everything to the nth degree. So I worked to very high levels of KPIs. And I think because I'm a numbers person and I I like targets, I like milestones, I like to achieve what I'm set out to achieve. Everything generally has to have a target or a process. And that's what I work towards. And again, I think it comes back to just my general makeup. If I say I'm going to make 10 cold calls, then I have to achieve the 10 and I'll stay until the 10 are done. So 
and that's in its smallest compartment. If you throw lots of stats at me, they've I've been known to be called Stato before, going back to the uh, fantasy football with uh, what was it, David Baddiel a few years ago. But I, I love my stats and I love achievements. You chuck numbers at me, I'll go and achieve the numbers. And now these days where I still work to the same KPIs that I had back in the day, but I've built in 1% changes. So it might be making one extra call a day. It might be arranging that one extra interview because I know the correlation between all the numbers and what effect that has on the output. And I think, again, that, that removes me from a lot of recruiters. And this comes from personal conversations with both high performers and the general norm of recruitment consultants is that most of it's on relationships. Most of it's about conversations, meetings. It's about um, speed. It's about quickness of thought. It's about the outwardly going flamboyant nature. And then you've got me that's actually documenting everything behind that to understand why the answers are, why they are. And that most recruiters don't have that, that process procedure. And they'll quite openly say that to me. My biggest problem is time management. It's structure, it's process, it's having a plan, it's having some sort of way of working every day. And I've, I've championed the element of that. And I think that's where now I probably get more interest from a lot of recruiters because that's the one area I know most struggle with. That's not saying they're not good at what they do. It's just in my experience, even the high performers can quite often leave a bit of a trail of destruction behind them because they're not even sure how they've got to the point where they've got so many attempts or so many placements. They're thinking, how, how did I even get here? I think um, we all know, I suppose, a, 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 a maverick. Right. Everybody knows whether uh, we, we might know one that's our friends, we might know one's in the industry, you might know one from sporting. You you could say who's a maverick. And those mavericks are the ones that possibly would leave that, that trail of destruction. I listened by pure coincidence this morning to a podcast with um, Sir Clive Woodward. And okay. I didn't expect to hear what I heard during it, but he did not mention, uh, he mentioned numerous times that word process. When you consider what he did and how he built the England, you know, rugby team and the characters that were involved in that team, it was really, um, I think it was refreshing to a certain extent, but it was certainly eye-opening to hear that word process and everything was measured. And that was so far removed from what I would have considered that a high-performing team like that to have been built on. And I, I don't know whether or not that is naivety or not, but it's certainly now 100% is resonating with, um, with, with, with what you're saying there. Is it possible to have a whole company, irrespective of whether it's recruitment, based on process-driven, considered, measured people? Do you need to have somewhere that maverick, that firecracker, that person who doesn't really regard the, the rules, inverted commas, quite so much? I think the, the answer to that is it depends, doesn't it? If it was my business, I like structure, I like process. I, I believe if that's in place, then everything you have is scalable because everyone knows where they need to be, what they need to be doing, and they know what they can achieve. They also understand if they were to do this, this is the outcome. And it all makes sense. You look at the big corporate recruit, uh, recruitment agencies, 
they all have KPIs in place because they understand what the numbers mean. And if the consultants are hitting the numbers, they know what the general output will be. You throw in some, some mavericks and some people that will perhaps come in for two years and blitz the sales. Um, and that's amazing. From any sales business, you want the ability to have top performing salespeople. And I think it's got its place. Um, but my, I suppose my understanding of it is those people move on as quickly as they arrive. And then you've got an element of risk and downside to that because how do you pick up the pieces where does it go what's been left behind if they're if they are high performing why if they're left <laughs> um so for me it asks it, i suppose it begs more questions than it does answers and it probably scares me a little bit because it's it's out of my comfort zone of personality traits because i like i like people to understand why they're doing something um i've spent the last 15 years talking about service delivery and i believe recruitment's more about service than it is about hitting kpis whilst kpis have a place and they're really important actually i think the industry's gone so far to, towards kpis that is now the detriment of the service you could sit there and you could say well if i pick that top performing maverick consultant who is performing at the highest level and they're performing really well if I start to try and implement my processes and procedures to that person, the likelihood is they're either going to become really bored because they don't have time for the process. They just want to make the sales. So they would leave. They'd just get frustrated with it. I might, I suppose, remove some of that flair and in effect, make them less effective. So I think there's, I think it depends is my honest answer. Um, I've worked with, and I've, had within my teams high-performing consultants and I've tried to harness that process with them sometimes it's worked I've been able to add a little bit of structure and a little bit of strategy others it just hasn't and and that's fine I think I think that's just the nature of the industry we're in it's a possible contradiction and, and sort of almost like dichotomy here isn't there because you know within KPI the, the P is performance, right? So by definition, if you're set, I don't know, let's let's use a rough metric, a hundred phone calls you got to make in a in a week, right? And you've done 110, you would argue you're a high performer in the context of that that particular KPI. Would your candidates or your clients say that you're a high performer? is is partly what you're saying there isn't it because <laughs> yeah how, how could they so so that is, it's a strange it's a strange one where that performance level is a concern is it's a high performance a high achiever ask his clients <laughs> ask his you know uh, ask her, her her candidates are is is that person a you know a high performer yeah. arguably not yeah i think the way i've changed so i came from a very heavily enforced kpi environment and, and I think it was good for me, if I'm honest. It was good because it gave me the foundation for the expectation and I knew what results it delivered. And as I say, I still work to them now. So it's obviously had a grounding into where I've got to. But in terms of management and leadership and leading teams of consultants, I've only ever used KPIs as a framework. This is what I would expect. These are the expectations. Um, but I've worked with recruiters that are top performing consultants and most of what they do is on email. 
I've worked with top performing consultants that most of it is on calls and they're useless with the database and they never send an email and, and trying to change the two. Yeah. You can kind of find a balance because there needs to be a bit of a balance, but actually trying to change the way someone's someone works or how their business works or how their business responds to them because you need to enforce a cold call or a sales call KPI target is actually to the detriment of the desk and the service they deliver on. And I think with KPIs, yes, you have a framework, but actually you, you have to lend them to way, the way the recruiter works, the way their market or sector works and how it's received. And actually some are better at certain areas and some aren't so good at other areas. KPIing everyone to the same sorts of numbers actually isn't going to work. It's about finding that balance and actually harnessing the good bits and just trying to improve the bits that are perhaps a little bit weaker. That would be my view anyway. And I think you Google KPIs in recruitment and honestly, you would spend weeks looking at the amount of KPIs you could KPI a consultant to. It's ridiculous. And I think when I was doing a, a training session about a year ago, I think I listed 50 separate KPIs for one individual consultant. 50 KPIs. You spend your lifetime ticking a whiteboard box to appease your manager who's on your back saying you blow on our stats, you need to get them up, while still performing well and placing people and hitting your financial targets. Because you haven't met enough clients that week or registered enough candidates or made enough sales calls, you're seen as underperforming, which is ridiculous. I think uh, I 100% agree with you, Steve. I think there's a maturity coming through within leadership. And by definition of the leadership, I mean those that are steering the ship, however that, that, that might look right now. Um, some people are great leaders, some people aren't. Some people are, are, are learning. I think what is being shown now, though, are people are respecting what each individual's requirements might be in the context of the bigger picture. So as you alluded to there, Steve, just because one person can do that set of KPIs does not mean that the person sat next to them can, but it doesn't mean that because that person can't, that the outcome isn't going to be the same or potentially even better. Um, yep. And you're, you know, you're hitting people with the same, the, you know, the, the, the same stick and expecting the same results. It isn't the way to go. Um, and there are plenty of case studies that you could use, not necessarily recruitment outside of that, where that mentality has completely shifted. And the results are, you know, extraordinary. And I think, you know, if you reference a football team, what Gareth Southgate's doing at the moment um, and the way that he's building that England team and a lot of the DNA of, of England is a result of what he's doing, which is everything was the same. Everything was putting things in a box. That's how it has been run previously. Now it's not. You think of the mm. people that are coming into that team now, the various different components. That would never have happened 10 years ago, 15 years ago, because it was no. all the same people having to do the same thing. Now you look at it and go, crikey, half the time you look at the team and go, how has he got in that team? And then you realise it's actually part of a bigger picture. Um, and, mm. you know, they are a small cog in, in, a, in a big, and they're doing a job. For the ultimate prize and that that can resonate into into recruitment easily can't it yeah completely and i'm a big Grealish fan as well he should have been in a long time ago <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> mm. 
Uh, yeah, I love Grealish. Not so, not so keen on his socks, um, but nonetheless, he's, he's, a, he's a cracking player. And, and 100%, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a star in Aceville, of course he is, but he is nonetheless a, you know, he does a fantastic job for that England team, whilst other people around him do other yeah. jobs. Yeah, completely. And I think you, you, talk, um, you talk about leaders or leading from the front. Um, you mentioned that. And, and I think that, that is something that I'm, I suppose I'm really passionate about, again, with high performance, because I, some of my personal feedback over the last few years was that I believe people can get there and I believe in people probably too much. And I will kind of almost argue their case continually because I see the fact that they have the ability to get to where I want them to get to or where they think they should be. Um, and the feedback I always got was, if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it probably is a duck. And I always, I, I never re, really used to see it because I would believe in someone so much that they were going to do well. And quite often it was probably more so than they did. And, and I think trying to get high performance out of people, if I could get every individual consultant on the right path, we as a collective group, Will hit far higher goals and bigger achievements because we're all headed in the same direction and the ability to lead from the front so I'm, I'm i'm an active builder i've continued to build throughout even at the point where i was managing 19 consultants across two regions i was still um putting perm placements out there and managing the desk i've always managed because i think it's important that i show that i'm still doing the day-to-day -day recruitment because I never want to sit in front of someone and say, well, you don't make any calls. Why should I make any more calls? <laughs> and I don't know whether that's just, it's me. It's me holding on to a desk that I love doing and, and a business that I've recruited in a long time. But also it's because I want to go through the pain barriers. I want to go through changes in legislation or hard times, economic downturns, pandemics, uh, and be able to sit here and say, do you know what? If I can get through this, then I can certainly get you to get through this. And we can all come out bigger and stronger at the end. Another question for you, slightly uh, detracting from this. How, um, although they're definitely relevant, how has 2020 left you feeling? Um, if I'm honest, that as a as a kind of individual looking back, it's all been relatively surreal. I think for probably for most people. It's a situation we never thought we would see ourselves in. It's, it's been very strange at times. 2020 has had lots of ups and downs, I think, again, like everyone else. Um, I work in a business where it's me and my wife. We're directors of a limited company. So going back to Feb, March of last year, we were in a position where we, we fall through the cracks of the government help. And you sit there thinking, okay, well, we're a permanent placement agency. So we don't have a temp desk to kind of almost kind of see us through the tough times. And it was about knuckling down and, and making things happen. You could sit there and think everything's a bit overwhelming, it consuming, it stops you in your tracks. And you think, I'm just going to sit here, wait for it to, to blow over, which has never been me. And it's certainly not my wife either. Um, so... I suppose I just saw it as a as an opportunity, and I think my trail of thought, my mindset has shifted over the last probably probably six to eight years more than ever before, 
in the fact that I want to make sure that I take control. I take action for everything that happens. I'm not in control of COVID. I'm not in control of the government. I'm not in control of anything external to where I am, but I am in control of how I think about things and how I motivate myself and how I actually just decide to get up every day and make something happen. And as long as I'm in that thought process, whether I fail is, is kind of irrelevant because it's just a stepping stone in the journey. But for me, 2020 was a massive opportunity. We can delve into that a little bit because that's um, that's fantastic. I mean, it's such a positive way to look at that. But what what does that opportunity look like for you? How have how have you turned, you know, which in anyone's book, you know, a, a, an awful period of time into an opportunity, and, and seemingly be so enthused about the fact that it is an opportunity? What is it that you that you've spotted? <clears throat> Um, if I go back, so just probably just slightly before the pandemic. So, so I left where I'd been consulting and working for 11 years in September, 2019. So it kind of coincided with my book being published, uh, which was done on purpose. Really the book initially was there as a, a differentiator. It was, it was written almost to be my business card to say it's Steve Guest, the recruiter that wrote the book. That was the idea. And the plan was to have six months of just really kind of taking stock. Uh, blood, sweat and tears had gone into developing the two regions before. So six months of just recruiting my desk, going back, working with my wife, just the two of us, bit of kind of um, work-life balance. We've got two, two young boys as well. So it gave me the ability to work from home and just, just kind of get back into the nitty-gritty of recruiting. The plan after the six months was to either start again, set up a new recruitment agency and, and build something new or actually just become a local consultant to local recruiters, local recruitment businesses and, and almost a, a mentor on the side of still recruiting. The six month um, window hit as COVID did. So I was then sat there thinking, well, what do I do now? Where do I go? It's not really the right time to set up a new recruitment agency is not really a time when everyone's on furlough to go and help mentor consultants so we'd got to i think about the second week of april and my timeline on linkedin was everyone was on furlough all recruiters were on furlough there was lots of insecurities there was wholesale redundancies there was some companies certainly in the midlands that were letting go of 30 40 staff in one day and there was a lot of frustration there was a lot of um, unhappy people that were concerned about their future and where they were going and I put a post out on LinkedIn and said I could see all this on my timeline um, I'm going to clear out my diary next week and if you want to have a chat a rant a laugh a cuddle whatever it might be my diary's open and I thought I would get 10 11 people booking and it would be friends it would be ex-colleagues it would be people just just checking in really for a bit of a bit of banter and a bit of a catch-up it ended up being 62 people and it was global. It was people from Switzerland, Hong Kong, Japan, Canada, South Africa, New Zealand, Australia, people I didn't know. They're in my network, obviously, but I'd never spoken to. Um, and it was 62 30 minute Zoom calls, Monday to Friday. Um, it was exhausting, if I'm honest, um, but it was massively um, valuable for me and I hope they got value from it as well and at the end of it I sat there and thought 
will actually realize that all the problems, all the hurdles, all the issues that recruiters have are actually just global. It was the same conversations. It was slightly different, slightly different questions and context. But what it did was it, it put me, or I suppose created my thought process on a much bigger, more global scale where it, it where it wasn't perhaps before because I was thinking more local. Um, and that's where the, the 12 week recruitment mastery training program came from because actually there was more conversations about individuals, not about businesses and companies. It was about recruiters wanting to be better, do better, achieve higher levels. And it was about the person. So I then spent the next 10 weeks locked in an office, just me, um, building and creating content across 12 modules, recording the videos, creating the PowerPoints, creating a 170 page workbook, 40, 45 downloadable documents, which I've built up over 15 years. I mean, I, the, the amount of notebooks I've got is ridiculous from the last 15 years because I'm a copious note taker. Um, and it's all relevant stuff. And I just thought if, if the pandemic wasn't here or hadn't have happened, I would have never have had the time to do that. Never, never in a chance to kind of just think, okay, recruitment's not happening. The market's kind of stopped. How am I going to utilize my time properly to create something that is of value? Um, and actually the whole mission of what I do now was probably born out of that. And it's, it's on a much larger scale than I would have anticipated before, before COVID and before the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, what you've created out of that is amazing. Um, there's no two ways about it. And I, I, the, the fact that you've kept notebooks for 15 years to, in my world is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, bits of paper yeah. that get screwed up at the end of the day. Um, I've got a reasonable memory, but um, nonetheless, I think that that's outstanding. Um, and, and having, you know, spoken with these people and, yeah, you're, I mean, it's sensational, you know, 60 odd sessions for half an hour and you're getting the similar sort of message. What, what were people feeling? What was the general um, consensus? Because a lot of the people listening to this podcast will be seeking in some way some um, sort of, I don't know, affirmation, I suppose, to a certain extent. And, um, you know, looking for um, so, some positivity. Um, what, what was the nub of what you got from those conversations okay. from, you know, people in very similar places, as you said, across, across the world? Yeah. I think the biggest the biggest issue at the time was obviously people on furlough, they couldn't do anything. So there was that worry about, do they have a job to go back to? What do they do while they're on furlough? How do they make use of that time? And it was about more about self-development, those sorts of conversations. The big thing that came through um, predominantly was business development, how to conduct business development because the landscape of the market has changed. People aren't in the office. People aren't at work. They're at home working remotely. And unless you had a relationship or a mobile phone, you're not going to get hold of the people you need to speak to. So everything was becoming email, message and in-mail. So how do we create engaging content through a message that grabs people's interest and gets um, clients answering? But also we were lots of conversations about personal branding and the, the rise of the personal brand through social media in the fact that it allows you to soften 
your cold calls. It, it allows you to become recognizable within your market without having had a one-to-one conversation. It's about building that profile so that actually people become, I suppose people get to a point where they know you are the person they need to speak to. Um, I talk a lot about the key person of influence by Daniel Priestley. And I mean, that book definitely changed my thought process three or four years ago. And it's probably one of the key determinants behind writing the book as well in that I want to be the person that people think of. If they think of construction, commercial recruitment, then I'm the person they come to. If they think of recruitment um, coaching or getting somebody to achieve higher levels, I want them to think of me. Um, And again, doing elements that lift you to a higher perceived level is actually one of the best places to be. And if you're promoting how you work, your ethics, your methods through social media um, presentation and you build up your personal brand, actually you'll grab a bit of market share, perhaps on the consultants that are on furlough, if you're still working. And the ones on furlough should be sat there thinking and coming up with strategies that they can implement when they get back to work. And it should be still along those sorts of lines. Um, A lot of the people I spoke to actually just needed some confidence. They just needed um, perhaps someone outside of their workplace to just give them a bit of a motivational boost and actually tell them that what they're doing is good and they should, they should stick with it and then perhaps suggest a few options for them to improve in certain areas. Um, it, I say it, it was, it was as much value to me, I think, as it was probably to the people I spoke to. Um, it was interesting listening to perhaps uh, certainly different cultures and how they, how social media branding or personal branding is perceived because there were certain countries and certain consultants that I spoke to that it just isn't the norm. And they're not, as a culture, they're not used to putting things out into social media for other people to make decisions. And my view is, well, if that's not the norm, then that's the place I want to be because I don't want to be the norm. It's like now, if I've had a, a conversation today with uh, some of my mentees and we were talking about cold calls. And I know it's a talked about topic at the moment. I don't want to go into too much detail, but every single salesperson, recruiter, are spending time sending emails, messages, and direct emails, every single one. So if you want to be in a different place, go back to where we were in the first instance and make a call. Yeah, it is, it is another topic for another time, that. But it is, yeah. it's, it's funny, isn't it, how the phone's become a USP? <laughs> I, I love it. I'm, I'm a cold call advocate, so I'll always suggest it. But people don't do it anymore, or at least try and shy away from it. I want to I want to um, I want to touch on to the the book. We can't not mention the book, of course, um, Top Biller. But without going into what the book is about just yet, what I'm really interested to understand is the angle that the mindset that you had, not for doing it, but doing it. Because the prospect for most people write to write a book is probably met initially with that challenge of oh, I haven't got time to do that. That's probably yeah. the first one. What would I write about anyway? Although you obviously had a clear sort of direction with that. And who the hell is going to read it? And I, I'd really like to look at this at a different angle and just think, 
how do you get someone's, you know, if someone's looking to do something different, right? It doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. need to be writing a book, but it's interesting that it is, that is completely different to what they, is their day-to-day journey. Because everybody's recruitment, mm-hmm. everybody in recruitment, generally speaking, will do the same job, right? And then generally yeah. speaking, Monday is the same as Friday. And there are some differences along the road, the, the road and some nuances, obviously. But do you want to do something different outside of that? And you, you, how do you change your mindset in order to make that happen? Um, I think I'm not sure whether it was a, a change of mindset. It was just the fact it was it was something else that I knew I had to do. And in a normal working day, I don't have time to write a book. I honestly don't. I'm I'm in the office from seven, half seven, and I'm going home at six bathing our two boys, putting them to bed, reading a story. By the time I've sat downstairs and ate my tea, I'm done for the day and I don't want to talk to anyone. I certainly don't want to be writing chapters of a book. And I think the the motivation to write something that was different, I'd read a number of recruitment books on the thought of writing a book and they were very much textbook savvy. They were quite hard work to get through and, and they weren't an enjoyable read. I certainly wouldn't be able to do it in one read. Half the time I'd get bored a quarter of the way through and think I've done with this. Um, so I wanted to create something that was relatable and genuinely just a bit of fun, but actually had some good content and value with it as well. Um, I started writing the book and I'd, I think I'd been writing for about six months and I actually stopped because work took over. It was the summer months, construction had picked up. And I think I had a, probably a three to six month gap I got to Christmas and just thought, you know what, I've got to pick this up. I've got to get it done. So I contacted uh, a publisher. Um, I'd, I'd been told it couldn't be classed as a book unless it was thirty-five to 40,000 words. And I think at that point I was on about 17 or 18. So I said to the publisher, this is where I'm at. I want to get the book published next year. What date can I work to? How long does it take to get published? And we agreed a date, I think it was June or July of 2019, because it takes two to three months to get it published and go through all the various checks. So I'd got a date in the diary, committed, I'd paid money, I had to get it done by June. Um, Because the commitment was there, it meant I had to get it done. So what I decided to do, I had the Christmas break, and then every morning I would get into the office for half five, very cold, dark mornings, Um, And I would just give myself an hour before the consultants come in to write something about the book. More often than not, I would give myself a question or I'd find something that had happened during the day so that when I got into the office in the morning, I knew I had an an hour to answer the question. And that's kind of how it built up so that I knew I was answering valuable questions that provided content and there were interesting questions or engaging questions, but actually it started to give me the content. Um, the reason behind writing the book was I wanted to champion the underdog naturally and say it's okay to be different and I wanted to empower an individual that was perhaps sat in an office thinking I don't fit in here or I'm not quite the norm I'm not the loud shouty one so what do I do do I just get up and leave if it's just not me I wanted to create something that people could read and say do you know what that is me and if this person can do it I'll go back and do it the amount of messages I've had, which are really nice and humbling from people I don't know that have said, your book's given me my mojo back or it's given me my motivation. I can't wait to get back in the office on Monday is the most rewarding comment I think you can ever get. 
hundred percent. I've read it, as you know, and, I, and I've um, reviewed it as well. And I, mean, I'm, I don't do recruitment anymore on the on the tools per se, but it reminded me when I was reading it of everything that I did. And I can see how, you know, as, as individuals, we start off doing one thing, we end up doing something else. In recruitment, that's very similar, especially when you have, you know, evolved, if that's the right word, from being a consultant on the on the tools use that expression to maybe managing a team i suspect there are people potentially now who are going back because they you know they, they, they have to um and doing that that job again i think for a a, book, a, a refresher and something to give you a, a maybe to spark some inspiration um and to get to get you thinking oh yeah because so often we forget the basics, don't we? In in, in life Absolutely. and in recruitment, yep. that's a hundred percent true. Um, and, that, and that book's inspiring where that's concerned. Well, I think you th- you think about recruitment; it's very difficult to reinvent the wheel. Recruitment is recruitment. It's about a good candidate, a great opportunity with a great client, and putting the two together, and then all the psychological bits in between and everything else that goes with it. You're not going to be able to reinvent what happens. But what you can do is come up with great strategies and processes behind the way that you work. And I think because of the way that I've worked, it's just very different to a lot of recruiters. And I think it adds um, elements of value, even if it's just little tidbits or little nuggets of you were trained in that way, but you did it 12 years ago and you forgot that actually that worked really well. And somehow you've just dropped it off what part of your process is now. And you, you think back and you think, do you know what? I don't know why I dropped that, but that's actually a really good strategy. Or oh, I've never tried that. And I think for me, it was, I wanted something that was, was relatable. That was the most important part of it. And it's got an element of fun to it. And, and actually, I remember sat in a room um, and it was um, a seminar. There was about 70, 80 people in the room. And the guy running the, the event said, uh, can you put your hand up if you've wrote a book? This was, I was probably three or four months into writing it then. And there was about eight or nine hands went up. And, uh, and he said, keep your hands up if you've sold more than 50 copies. And all the hands went down. <laughs> and I was sat in there thinking, what? I'm doing all this to sell less than 50 copies. And the thought, the thought does enter your head. And you think, as you said, is anyone going to read it? Are people just going to rip it apart and say it's a load of rubbish? Why would anyone buy it? Am I going to sell less than 50 copies? Is actually anyone even remotely interested in anything I've got to say? There's a whole load of hurdles you could put there that stops you from doing any of it. Them cold, dark mornings when you're getting up at half five thinking, why am I doing all this? I remember having a conversation with my wife and she she said, she says it now. She didn't say it at the time. (laughs) When, When I said, I'm going to write a book. She did say her first thoughts were, oh, my God, what was he writing a book for? Why would anyone want to be reading anything you write? She didn't <laughs> say it, but obviously now it, it, it's done reasonably well. She's like, I, I did really doubt it when you first said it, because that's, the, that's normal human thought process. I've got nothing to say. I've got no value. Why would anyone read it? I don't think I'll bother. So you never find out. And do you know what? If it all fell apart around me, if it all failed... All my clients, my candidates would have probably still got a copy. It would have been a little bit of a a difference because I'm still the recruiter that wrote the book. I'd have had a bit of fun with it along the way. And and I would still be very happy with what what it achieved and the fact that I'd published a book. The fact that it's done so well is truly humbling and I've enjoyed the journey. 
and it's beyond all expectation. But actually, I still see it as something that I was going to do. I'm now partway through my second book because of how well the first one's done. Great. If I can write two, if I can write two books, then everybody can write one. <laughs> According, I bet your wife would say that as well, wouldn't she? Well, I haven't asked her what she thinks about the second book yet. Yeah. <laughs> we'll Listen, guys, we'll Steve see. can write a book. You definitely can. Um, there we go. It seems, a, it seems a pertinent moment to ask you, Steve, and I do like these uh, questions outside of sort of the, the, the industry and what have you. What, what makes you happy? Things being in its right place. <laughs> <laughs> no do you know what I, I think having a goal having a big reason why that actually makes a difference and I think over the years since our first uh, boy was born so he's now eight that's the bit that changed for me in, in the fact that it sounds reasonably corny but everything I do is for my boys to grow up with opportunity and have choice and have the ability to um, do things that perhaps wouldn't be in place if I didn't take the risk. Um, and I'm quite happy to, to kind of fall down numerous times and follow paths to be su as successful as I can be so that at least I can pass things down to, to my kids. Um, we've got a really happy family life and, I would say that's where my, my heart is. Everything I do, all the hard nights, all the, the days where I get up and I think I just can't do it anymore or I have those days of doubt where I question everything I'm doing, which I still have. Actually, the bigger picture isn't about me. It's about everything else around me and it's about achieving successes that will support and help my kids to grow up and have a, a great life. And I think that's, that's what makes me happy. That's what drives me on. That has changed over years. Started off being nice holidays and um, everything else that goes with it. But I think for now, it's about, it's about leading again, leading from the front, taking the risks, trying things, doing things that I perhaps wouldn't have done 10 years ago. And then allowing for that opportunity and that choice. What are you grateful for? To be honest, everything around me. Um, I've got a, a great family, a great supportive wife. Me and my wife are on the same page. And I love that. We challenge each other. We This year, we've been together 21 years. Met as holiday reps. Um, and we are a, a spot on team. And I love it. I'm grateful for everything that's happened around me, the good and the bad, the the down bit the down days the hard times help get you to where you are and i think they help position you as a person um so i, I spend every day grateful and i'm generally most days a happy person <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love that answer i love the you know the the teamwork aspect and your great team is is that's that's made me feel full you know really warm and happy um mm. on, a, on a different note what are the three non-negotiable behaviors that the people around you have to buy into i think these are just i suppose common core values honesty integrity um delivering on what you say you're going to deliver on i'm a very simple person at the best of times and i mean that on the basis that 
when I deliver on service, the way I work, if I say I'm going to call you at four o'clock, I'll call you at four o'clock. There's no negotiables to it. I've agreed to it. So that's what I do. And I think for me, it's getting the basics right. If you get the basics right, everything else will follow. Um, I'm a very loyal person. I stick with people and I'll protect them and I'll look after them and I'll raise them up when they need to be and I'll challenge them when they need that as well. And it's just about being open and honest and being together. So I think just common core values, honesty, integrity, um, delivery on service and having good ethics. Final question. What advice would you give the teenage Steve Guest? Okay, I think the the big advice. So I, I suppose, adopted my dad's traits of being a bit of a faffer, as you would call them around here. <laughs> so for those that don't know what a faffer is, it's a procrastinator. It, I was always one of those people that, because of the way I am, I have to get all my ducks in a row. I have to be 100% certain of something before I commit. And I think that held me back for a long time. I think the worry of failure, the worry of not performing or perhaps even underperforming, the fear of underperforming held me back. So if I was talking to my teenage self, it would be more about just go and get it done. Go and take action. Even if you're 75% of the way there, just do it. Because that's the person I'm, I've turned into. I worry less about worrying and the, the nervousness of something may happen or might happen. And actually, I just get it done. And then if it happens, it happens. That would be my biggest thing. I think take action, go and make it happen. And if it fails, it fails. You've learned a lesson, move to the next bit. I think um, one of my favorite phrases that has come out of 2020, and it's certainly something that I, I live by, um, is what's the worst that can happen? And I think from a, I don't know if it's necessarily a leadership tool as such, but I certainly think from the people that I've spoken with on this podcast, when we're talking around high performance, there is an element of every single one of those people um, who have said, I did it because I felt what's the worst that could happen. Um, and it, it, it's a great philosophy. Um, not foolproof. It's so true, isn't it? I think, I think we as human beings, I talk a lot about the fact that we are um, almost in self-preservation mo mode and we naturally put hurdles and things in place to stop us from falling down, facing fear, dealing with rejection, um, getting ridiculed or critiqued. The one major thing for people not putting stuff on social media is the fear of trolls or fear of someone saying they don't agree with them. And I get it. I, I completely get it. But actually... Who's got the problem there? <laughs> yeah. And then, and if you just if you just get past it, you get past that habit of allowing yourself an, an excuse not to do something, and you just think, do you know what? Just get out of your own way and go and do it, and then deal with it. But I, I do get it. I I was talking the other week about so the um, the reviews on Top Billow on Amazon. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure it's still on there, but I've got one one star review think it's still there and they're all four and five stars and i'd had a, a number of weeks up until about march or april four or five months into it being published the reviews were great and I, I loved obviously seeing them and then i got that one bad review saying it was all about um what was it self um 
affirmations. There was quotes that didn't need to be in there. It was all about Steve talking about Steve and there was no real um, ideas, no, nothing new in there. It wasn't worth the read or the paper it was written on. And I still get a few now, but that, that review stuck with me for months and the, the good reviews just vanished. And it's amazing we as humans, we, we almost gravitate towards the negative or the downside. And we forget actually all the positives that go with it. And I think there's definitely a lesson in there in the fact that certainly I'm a worrier. I'm a procrastinator. I know that. And that's how I was brought up. But I've had to teach myself to actually just remove that and just go and do it and then deal with it afterwards. And half of the stuff never happens anyway. Stephen Gerrard talks about that with that infamous slip when uh, Liverpool yeah. didn't quite make the title. And he said after everything that he'd done, everything he'd achieved, he could, he took him a long time to get over that one moment of all yeah. of his career, which was a glittering career. And yeah, he could, yeah. And he, and he couldn't shake it off because he'd, he'd forgotten to think about all the successes. He'd forgotten to think about all the praise. He'd forgotten yeah. to think about everything that got him to the point of that in the first place and how that just, it ate him up. And it's a really interesting thing because it 100% yeah. what you just said there. It's said. crazy, isn't it? Yeah. It's crazy. I, d I don't know why we kind of go that route, but we, we all just do it. And so many people I talk to where they just can't do something because of a mental hurdle that actually is just their own personal I suppose, protection system. And I think if I go back to my, my younger self, I was always the person that would come up with a reason for not doing something because I was scared of the potential downside or the outcome. And actually, as I've got older, and I suppose I've been the person that's decided that, you know what, I'm just going to take the risk so my kids don't have to. Even if that's not always the, the kind of probably true um, point to it, the fact is, whatever I'm fearful of, I just think, do you know what, I'll do it so that I can then tell my kids actually it's worth doing. And then it gets me over that hurdle. And then I've done it. And then all the worries I had never appear. One word, Steve, that you see to describe a high performer. What does every high performer you ever met have? I think we've already said it, it's resilience. Because high performers become high performance because they've got back up and they've never stopped. There's so many times where I could have stopped in everything I do. Because the more you do, the more out there you are, the more people that try and pull you back down. And don't get me wrong, I have times where I sit there and think, yeah, do you know what? I think I've, I think I've had enough. And then about three seconds later, I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so I'd say, I'd say resilience. You need, you need to have what I term as the backbone, backbone of a rhino and just let it, let it wash off. Great. Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Loved podcast. I, I, I could have gone on for, for ages. Um, I think you have a, a, a unique um, disposition, which is, you know, rarely found in, a, in, a, in our sector, and it's so refreshing. And to, to hear you, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Your thoughts, your insights, but also, you know, bearing your soul as well. It's um, it's been really, really enjoyable. 
Thank you so Pleasure. much. Pleasure. I've loved it. Thank you. That was Steve Guest. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show. I know I did. Um, I'm sitting in our musing over what we'd spoken about for you know an hour or so. It's very rare that we find in in our recruitment sector anybody um, or few people as measured, considered, or or process driven as much as Steve seems to be. And I love the fact that he's owning it. He's owning everything, and it seems as though he's owned it ever since his first rejection. Um, maybe that was a kick and, you know, to start him off on his journey. Who knows? Marginal gains. We discussed this quite a lot in high performers. Um, I think it's misrepresented or misunderstood uh, potentially in, in recruitment. But that thought of just doing one thing extra a day that is more or better than the day you did it before uh, to, to get those incremental gains. Such a lovely outlook. Um, He's also a lovely fellow, Steve. If you uh, if you want to follow him, uh, perhaps you want to you want to buy his book. Um, I know he's got an offer um, on that book right now. It's, I've read it. I've done a review on it. Um, it's great for business leaders to uh, reflect on early days, uh, reinvent, you know, sort of uh, kickstart them again. It's great for consultants as well, uh, especially new ones that are coming through for them to read and also if you wanted to put anybody on on one of his courses um including yourself of course uh check him out on linkedin it's steve guest um there's probably only one he's the one holding the book um hope you enjoyed the show and uh catch you on the next one thank you